Today's episode is sponsored by the American Chemistry Council. Chemistry creates, America competes. So on the world stage, vaccines are kind of like the new currency. Absolutely. This has me imagining Tony Soprano chasing someone down, but instead of being like, where's my money? Where's my f***ing money? He's like, where's my vaccine? (laughs) I think that's a much better way to put it. You should be writing my newsletter. (laughs) I'm Jeremy Siegel. This is Politico Dispatch. And today, I'm Ryan Heath, and I write Politico's Global Translations newsletter. So looking at everything that happens around the world and to the world. Ryan Heath on the tricky diplomatic tensions emerging in the race to get the entire world vaccinated. There are huge divergences around the world. Right now, we have about a dozen countries that have made significant progress. Just over four months ago, Israel's COVID outbreak was one of the worst on earth. The country went into strict lockdown. And then the Israeli government struck a deal with Pfizer-BioNTech for enough vaccine to inoculate every Israeli adult by the end of March. Right at the top is Israel. 90% of the population is vaccinated. Two months in, the data is as good as the scientists predicted. In a study of 1.2 million people, half got the vaccine, and they were 94% less likely to get sick. In other words, among the vaccinated, COVID is in dramatic decline. United Arab Emirates is also over 50%. The first major country in that list is really the United Kingdom. With scenes like this in London over the weekend, you'd be forgiven for thinking restrictions were already over. They've got about 30% of people vaccinated. Infection rates are falling quickly across the country, with an 80% drop in infections in the capital. Cases of the South African variant are also shrinking. Then the US comes in close behind at about 20%. We're now at a point where we've seen the average daily number of people vaccinated nearly double from the week before I took office to about 1.7 million average per day getting a shot. And that group of countries is really way ahead of others like Canada, China and Russia. They're all below 4% at the moment. And then you have the biggest group of countries of all, about 130 of them, where they haven't had any vaccinations delivered yet. With that big discrepancy between different countries and the vast majority not having much access to vaccines at all, Ryan, you're reporting that a new form of diplomacy is emerging that's being called vaccine diplomacy. Uh, Cool name. I don't know what it means. What is that? That's essentially countries, in particular China and Russia, who have rushed to send donations or sell at a very cheap price vaccines abroad. It's a way for them to channel soft power and try and turn themselves into indispensable sort of health entities around the world. And that's a position that's previously been occupied by the United States, by other rich Western countries or the United Nations system itself. And we're in a situation now where even though China and Russia have only produced about 10% of the available vaccines in the world, they're giving most of the donations. It's a very bad look for the Western countries, but there are some good reasons why that dynamic is the way it is. Why are China and Russia doing this? What's in it for them? 
Well, you have the essentially PR win uh, where you can say we don't put ourselves first. We consider the whole broader health picture. Shipments of Chinese vaccines arriving in Egypt. Manufacturers have struck deals to supply 400 million doses to countries around the world. The arrival in Argentina of the first batch of 300,000 doses of the Sputnik vaccine from Moscow. A symbol of hope for the country's 45 million inhabitants although health experts warn there are still difficult days ahead. It makes them look good and make the West feel vulnerable at a time when they're worried about a rising China or an aggressive Russia. And the reality is that China and Russia aren't democracies, so they can afford to put their citizens second, which is not something that Western countries can really do. They, they do have to put their citizens first while also considering the, the, the global implications of this pandemic. And the reality is that China has also managed its pandemic fairly well. After the virus was initially discovered in a wet market here last December, the city was completely locked down. Across the country, international travel was banned and mass testing made mandatory for millions. So it's not dealing with a medical crisis at home. To some, China's strict measures seemed severe, but medical experts have since said being able to take such steps saved lives. And that's a double disadvantage for the US and European countries at this point. Is there a financial incentive for countries like China and Russia here? Yeah, I think that it's important that we see what China and Russia are doing as not merely aid or generous actions. There's elements of that, and they will try and amplify those elements in the stories that they tell the world when the planes land and the vaccines arrive with the local president and the Chinese ambassador there to greet them. A batch of Sinopharm vaccine donated by China has arrived in Laos. Chinese ambassador to Laos, Jiang Zaidong, and Lao Health Minister uh, Butkon were at the airport in Vanjian as the consignment arrived. But China also has a very sophisticated investment strategy around the world, and it's changing that investment strategy. Often that was based on loans in the past or building concrete infrastructure like bridges and ports. Both countries are calling it a win-win. Sri Lanka, struggling to pay its debts, has signed a huge port deal with China, which will give it a foothold in the busy sea lanes between Asia and Europe. China has paid a little over a billion dollars to take a 70% stake in the Hambantota port on Sri Lanka's southern coast. And they're really changing that form of investment. And in some countries, we can see that they are substituting those loans with other investments. And vaccines really need to be considered as one of those investments. And when you look at the overall picture, China isn't necessarily investing more in Latin America or Africa than it has in the past. It's just including vaccines in that investment portfolio now. And that's very different to just a pure donation and generosity system. So the idea is like, I hook you up now and down the line, you're going to owe me for these vaccines. That is essentially the system. And it's not just China and Russia. India is playing this game as well. Days after rolling out a nationwide inoculation program, India, the world's biggest vaccine producer, donated millions of doses of the British-developed AstraZeneca vaccine to Nepal, Bangladesh, Bhutan, the Maldives, Seychelles, Mauritius and Myanmar. They are trying to get vaccines to at least 49 different countries in what they call their vaccine friendship program. The goodwill gesture won praise from neighbours such as Bangladesh. A friend in need is a friend indeed.
But one of those countries is the small island nation of the Seychelles. And that's a country that India has long wanted to have a military base and presence on because it wants to be able to counter China in the Indian Ocean. Capital, all eyes are now on the seventh round of India-China military level talks that are currently underway. And we've got to be honest, that's one of the reasons why the Seychelles has been picked as a partner in that Indian program. Mm. I want to talk about the U.S.'s role here. I know we're part of COVAX, the WHO-led effort to get equitable vaccine distribution across the world. The World Health Organization program is aiming to deliver 2 billion doses to people in 190 countries by the end of the year. In particular, it wants to ensure that 92 poorer countries will receive access to vaccines at the same time that 98 wealthier countries. The first shipments from COVAX were delivered in Ghana yesterday. But where does the U.S. fit into all of this? So the U.S. has a, a very large number of leading vaccine candidates. It also has several already approved vaccines. So we need to see the U.S. and the West as well positioned in the long term. Uh, Joe Biden has made the biggest donation of all individual countries to that COVAX global facility. I'm announcing that the United States is making a $2 billion pledge to COVAX with the promise of an additional $2 billion to urge others to step up as well. The US, like a lot of other Western countries, also invests in the underlying health infrastructure that exists in a lot of these poorer countries. And that's important too. It matters that vaccine doses are being donated, but if the underlying supply chains and infrastructure isn't there to get that into people's arms, then none of it's going to work, whether it's a Chinese vaccine, an American vaccine, or, or anything else. And so the US is making the biggest donation there. But I think we also need to get very serious about increasing those sort of investments because the numbers we're talking about are very small compared to the overall cost of economic stimulus or economic lockdowns. And the reality in medical terms is that we are in a battle between the vaccines and new variants of the virus so that if we do not get these vaccines into people's arms and we don't work on developing and tweaking more vaccines, we might find ourselves in the situation that South Africa found itself in, where it had to entirely abandon the AstraZeneca vaccine, which proved to be only 10% effective in the new variant that is dominating the caseload in South Africa. And if that starts to happen everywhere or we leave poorer countries out of the distribution plans, we might find those variants coming back into the US coming back into other rich countries, and then nobody is safe. So you could end up with a situation where, like, most people in the U.S. are vaccinated and safe, but then a smaller or poorer country doesn't have access to vaccines. Uh, the virus is able to spread, a new variant emerges, and it can bring everybody back to square one. Absolutely. Unless we're willing to firmly close the borders, impose mandatory testing and mandatory quarantine on any exceptions of who we're willing to let into the country, unless we do that, uh, we're not going to be truly safe until 70 or 80 percent of people in every country are vaccinated. So that famous herd immunity doesn't work for individual countries. It has to work for all of us. And we're not going to get there until 2022 or 2023 at this rate. So we've really got to ramp up our ability to produce and distribute the vaccine and we have to take account of everybody or one of those variants can just sweep in behind us and knock us all out again. Ryan, Heath, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you, Jeremy. Also, 
Today, Senate Energy Chair Joe Manchin says he supports the nomination of Representative Deb Holland to lead the Interior Department, giving a crucial boost for the New Mexico lawmaker to be the first Native American to serve as a cabinet secretary. In a statement, he said, quote, while we do not agree on every issue, she reaffirmed her strong commitment to bipartisanship addressing the diverse needs of our country and maintaining our nation's energy independence. Holland has faced criticism from Republicans over prior comments opposing fracking, fossil fuels, and pipeline projects. And Manchin, the most pro-fossil fuels Democrat in the Senate, is seen as a crucial vote for her nomination. And... Get used to me. That's embattled Postmaster General Louis DeJoy's message to lawmakers as he continues to face criticism of his leadership of the U.S. Postal Service and calls for President Biden to replace him. During a House Oversight and Reform Committee meeting on Wednesday, DeJoy said he intends to be around, quote, a long time, but that could soon be put to the test. Yesterday, the White House announced that Biden is nominating three people to fill open seats on the board that determines the postmaster's fate. If they're confirmed, Democratic appointees would have a majority of the USPS Board of Governors' nine-seat panel, potentially giving them the opportunity to get rid of the joy. Subscribe to Politico Dispatch wherever you get your podcasts. And to stay up on our latest coverage of global politics and policy, sign up for the Global Translations newsletter at politico.com slash newsletters. I'm Jeremy Siegel. Thanks for listening.